<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. You know, television never used to be a very good friend to horror stories. Yeah, the Twilight Zone and the Outer Limits could be chilling, but it's hard to build tension and suspense when you've got to sell baby wipes and cleaning products every eight minutes. And network television was also hamstrung by high levels of censorship. That changed a lot when paid TV channels like HBO and Showtime started making successful series of their own, and broadcast TV had to compete. HBO's Tales from the Crypt was a sensation with its weekly jolt of shock, blood, and nudity. I remember when we were making the miniseries of Stephen King's The Stand. ABC told us there would be no open eyes on the dead. Well, we extended our middle finger to broadcast standards by going right in tight on the cloudy dead eyes of one of the superflu victims during the title sequence of the very first night. Things were changing. But even when we were doing Masters of Horror for Showtime, we ran into censorship from the network. One of the episodes, Takashi Miike's imprint, never aired because the powers that be decided it was just too shocking for their audience. It seems like a long time ago. It feels now like horror is better on television than it is in the movies. Shows like The Walking Dead, Penny Dreadful, The Strain, and most importantly for us today, Hannibal and American Gods are much more satisfying, smart, and scary than anything you'll find in the cinemas. Hannibal is my favorite broadcast series ever. Its horror was bloody, grotesque, and yet strangely elegant, beautiful even. There's a visionary behind that. Brian Fuller created and wrote much of that beloved series. And we're going to find out with him why blood on the small screen seems so much more beautiful than on the large. This is Postmortem with Mick Garris. Well, tell me about your childhood. I mean, most... uh, most people within the genre seem to have had very kind of singular lives. You were a small town product. Oh, yes. Uh, small town in eastern Washington, uh, western Idaho, called the Lewis Clark Valley. And when I was going through puberty, uh, well, pre puberty, through puberty, and beyond, uh, there was a serial killer in my hometown. <laughs> wow. And it was a fascinating cloud that hung over the the city in, in a way that I was largely unaware of but caught enough rays of strange sunshine uh, coming through that I would, you know, pedal my bike out to the bridge where bodies were thrown off and there were blood stains and, you know... How those, very standby me of you. Yeah. It, it was very standby me-esque and it was interesting because, you know, there was the brown van, which was the la- one of the victims was last seen getting into a brown van and so the brown van took on this massive mythology for me as a kid and we were always on the lookout for a brown van and wow. uh, so that was you know being raised catholic 
in a small town where there was a serial killer, <laughs> kind of uh, uh, it knocked down some some barriers to uh, oddness that that may have stood otherwise. Well, before that happened, did you find yourself drawn to the outre? Uh, you know, I think my first taste was uh, the Munsters. Really? That, Which cropped up later in your career. Yes, yes. And I was obsessed with the Munsters. And I remember one time in particular, my parents or my mom said that the kids were watching too much television and we had to choose one show to watch after school. And my siblings didn't choose the Munsters and I burst into tears and then ultimately got to watch the Munsters. <laughs> Well, that's that's fascinating. So were you drawn equally to science fiction and horror or did you – most people kind of lean one way or the other, but your career envelops both of them. Well, I would say the the sweet spot of a movie for me is Alien, which is science fiction horror and, and such a wonderful hybridization of those two genres. So that movie was my Star Wars in, in many ways. Star Wars was also my Star Wars, but <laughs> – uh, Alien, I had uh, as obsessive, if not more obsessive, tendencies about uh, than Star Wars because Star Wars belonged to everybody and Alien mm. felt like it was mine mm. and it was something that I discovered at the grocery store with the photo novel, uh, which oh. was readily available to children who could reach a certain height. And so I knew the movie frame by frame before I had even seen it and I had to watch it uh, at 6 a.m. on Showtime with a blanket draped over the television, for, you know, so the light wouldn't wake up anybody else in the house and they would know that I was up early watching horror films. That's great. Now, how many siblings did you have? Youngest of five. Wow. And what did your parents do? My father was an electrician and my mother was uh, a homemaker until we were in, until I was in grade school, and then she was a floral designer. And did you, were you the only one of your siblings who was drawn to the dark side? No, my oldest brother was pretty, uh, had a very dark sense of humor and loved horror movies and science fiction as well, and was uh, a fairly skilled model builder and would build all of these creepy recreations of World War II battlefields with zombie Nazis. <laughs> and uh, I remembered thinking that was pretty cool, but perhaps he liked the Nazis a little too much. <laughs> <laughs> now, your first opportunity was with Star Trek. Yes. And so how, how did that happen? How did you go from being a small-town kid in uh, western, uh, eastern Washington to writing for Star Trek? Uh, well, once again, the movie Alien played a big role. I was uh, taking courses to become a psychiatrist, and a lot of my essays and papers were about psychological breakdowns of characters and films and what their motivations were. 
And finally, I was taking an experimental psychology course, and my experiment was, do you get more out of watching a movie if you understand the psychological subtext or if you're just experiencing it as a thriller? And I used Alien as the case study. And so do you love that everybody's getting eaten one by one or do you notice that it's a penis-headed monster (laughs) that a mother betrays her family to and all of the kind of uh, rape subtexts of, of, of demon spawn and uh, the vagina-shaped doors and the fallopian tube-shaped ship. And does that change your experience? And so my, my instructor basically said, you don't belong in psychology. You belong <laughs> in the film industry. Wow. And I said, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> and the next uh, student uh, teacher meeting, I came in and he had laid out on his desks all these pamphlets for film schools and said that uh, I needed to pick a few and apply. So you went to USC, right? Yes. Yes. And tell me about that experience and how, how that uh, opened this door up to you. Well, it was an interesting experience. Um, I essentially put myself through college and it was I had to drop out because I ran out of student loans <laughs> so it was it was interesting in being out in the world having yourself to depend on with I think I I was working three jobs at, mm. at the maximum um, and I was going to a school where there were a lot of wealthy children that didn't have uh, to figure out how they were going to pay for their their dorm room, um, so college was a blur of just trying to survive financially <laughs> <laughs> and uh, learning a few things in film school, but mostly it was it was uh, survival mode. So was it a student loan kind of situation? Or? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes, and when they ran out, I had to drop out. So I'm not a college graduate. Now, do you do you feel you were an outsider as a kid and in high school in, in those formative years? Were you figuring out who you are? I was an outsider, but I was not alone you as an loner. outsider. Yeah, yeah there, I had a, a great group of friends that I discovered in middle school and, and we stayed close through high school and I'm still you know, in contact with some of them uh, through Facebook. But it was... It was nice to have like-minded souls that we would go to Kelly's Comics and buy Fangoria's and soundtracks and movie posters at this little uh, foyer in mm-hmm. someone's house in, in Washington, in Clarkston, Washington, that uh, was once a comic book store, but everything, that comic book store closed down because there wasn't a big market for it in the Valley. And so it was now operated out of this man's living room or, or foyer. And you could see through the, the curtains, his mother watching TV just beyond. And it was such a fascinating archetype that <laughs> you get out in the world and then you see how uh, there's a lot of, of folks who find themselves alone with their their fandom. And now... With the internet and and social media, people get to celebrate their fandom much more inclusively. Did you write fiction before you started writing screen material? Not really. I there were a couple of times that uh, I wrote uh, I wrote an adaptation of Interview with the Vampire when I was in high school, and I also wrote uh, or started to write a sequel to Aliens. Z-Z-Z-Z. 
uh, you know, <laughs> those types of things. But the, as a screenplay in the screenplay format or yeah, in yeah, fictional format? Yeah, okay. in, a, in, a, in a screenplay format. And uh, But just as like a stupid kid going like, I'm going to do this <laughs> and not knowing all the obstacles. Now let's go back to how USC Film School turned into selling a script to Deep Space Nine. Well, after essentially, there's no connection. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, uh, I had been um, temping for, gosh, six years, I think, before um, I got wind of the um, – the open submission policy at Star Trek, which was to encourage writers to bring in ideas because it was syndicated and nothing had to connect. So there was a lot of standalone episodes that they they were searching for people outside of their writing departments. To, now, you were temping at industry jobs or just in now, general? at banks and healthcare associations. And it was... Uh, so you saw this posted in Variety or something? or. I had I had heard about it through um, there was a Ron Moore and Brandon Braga and Lolita Fascio, uh offered at one of the Star Trek conventions a how to write for Star Trek. So you uh, were seminar. going to Star Trek conventions before you were part of Star Trek. I I had been to a couple of them, not as as regularly because I I, I had I wasn't aware of them. Um, I do remember a, a, a funny uh, gay and lesbian Star Trek group that uh, my roommate and I went to that we were like, oh, they perhaps like it more than we do. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it was, it was, it was interesting, the, those groups. But yes, yes, went to a Star Trek convention, took this class from Ron Moore and Brandon Braga and then wrote a spec script and submitted it. And they bought it. No, they rejected it. <laughs> and they uh, rejected it. Yes. And um, I was sad briefly. And then I got back up on uh, my hobby horse and wrote another one and submitted that. And then that one got me invited in to pitch. Uh-huh. And when I the first one I pitched was the story to the one that they rejected and I sold it. Uh, <laughs> you showed them. It, well, I was just like, it's a really good story. Um, so then I sold another one and then uh, I got a script assignment from Voyager and uh, was invited on staff and I was on staff for four years. And so that had to have been an amazing experience being in a room of writers on a series that you revered. It was fascinating. And I got to sit in the Deep Space Nine writer's room before I went to the Voyager's writer's room. And the difference was essentially the Deep Space Nine people had no shame about their love for the genre. And there was a little bit of snobbery in the room, in the Voyager room. Oh. So I was like, I was like, please, please pick me, Deep Space Nine, please, please. <laughs> oh. And uh, then... Uh, they went with other writers and then I got a job on Voyager, which I was thrilled for, but I had to kind of tamp down my, my enthusiasm because it was frowned upon in the writer's room. To you be, didn't want to be the geek in the room. Well, they discouraged you from being the geek in the room. Mm. And so it was always like looking over the fence uh, at the the public school when you were in the Catholic school and saying like, they look like they're having more fun. <laughs> so tell me what the attraction for Star Trek in specific was for you. You know, it's interesting. Uh, Star Trek crosses a lot of 
boundaries politically. Uh, like conservatives like Star Trek for a reason that is different than the way liberals like Star Trek. And that's fascinating um, you know, because I, I feel like conservatives like the, the quasi-fascist military regime where everybody's <laughs> behaving and there's no wild expressions of, of personality um, that couldn't be quantified by science. And liberals love the inclusivity and the hope for the future that we're all going to get along and accept each other's differences and celebrate them. And uh, everybody has a place on one of those ships. So I'm much more liberal-minded uh, in that respect where Star Trek for me always was about we're going to get our shit together. Mm-hmm. And we have a chance as a species. <laughs> right. The Gene Roddenberry approach. Yes, absolutely. So who did you read at that time? We've talked about what you like to watch. Who did you read? Um, as a kid, I read it was, it was a steady diet of Stephen King, Clive Barker, and Anne Rice. Wow, the triumvirate. Yeah, they were, those were the ones that uh, fueled my adolescence. And also, I read a ton of horror movie novelizations because I couldn't go to the movies. So I would read about them and get the soundtracks for them before I had even seen the movie. My first job in the movie business was answering phones for the original Star Wars for 150 bucks a week <laughs> at, at Lucasfilm and uh, operating the R2-D2 robot on the Oscars in 1978. So that was That's my a great gig. <laughs> It was a great gig. And, you know, years later, worked on Amazing Stories, and we'll talk a little about what happened to the reboot of that or yeah, what is happening. Yeah. But I kind of took a turn to darker stuff as 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 my career went along. And it seems like yours has too. I mean, you don't get much darker than Hannibal, yeah. but we'll, we'll take the progression <laughs> there. But you were a reader of King and Barker and Anne Rice, and I've worked with Steve and I've worked with Clive a lot, but you did Carrie. You rebooted right. Carrie with the Angela Bettis uh, the TV movie. And Patricia Clarkson. And Patricia Clarkson. Amazing stuff. So tell me about that experience. Did you pitch it or did they come to you? The, I had just sold Dead Like Me uh-huh. to MGM and they said, hey, we're remaking Carrie. Would you like to write that? And I said, yes. Mm-hmm. And adapting it was an interesting experience because I love <laughs> the novel so much. and I love the, the structure of the novel. And, uh, but what Brian De Palma did so brilliantly is he, he ran across that minefield of adaptation and didn't lose a limb. Whereas <laughs> I feel like by the end of the, the TV carry, uh, there, like there may have been one limb left and we were dragging ourselves across <laughs> the finish line. Cause like the, the present day story you could remove entirely and mm. keep telling that tale. But we were like, Oh, it was in the book and it was great and it hasn't been done. So let's do it. And Brian De Palma was like, ah, <laughs> fools. Um, so it's, it, because Angela Bettis and Patricia Clarkson are so great, I'm I'm haunted by the idea of getting back into the editing room and just excising all of the the unnecessaries and focusing on those two ladies' performance. And uh, I think there's a, a a good movie in there. It's I don't think anybody has seen it yet. <laughs> 
<laughs> would, you, would you ever consider doing that for Blu-ray special edition? Absolutely. But all you, you want know, is to be asked. The, yeah, they. Yeah, just ask me. You have written and produced and executive produced. Why not directing? Well, there's there, there has been a bit of directing throughout all of the shows, and really, it's about time management and production management mm-hmm. because there are so many facets of the production and the aesthetic of the production that I feel like a showrunner is a director, but is directing through directors and then those directors amplify and add their own voice to the harmony and uh, it's it's definitely something that I, I need to rectify and, and do uh, officially because I feel like I'm doing I've done all the facets of that job. I just need to own something uh, with a director's eye uh, soon. Well, certainly your shows reflect your sensibility. Yes. As a showrunner, and people say that feature films are a director's medium and television is more a producer's medium. But it seems they're meeting more now in television because – Television has gotten much more theatrical and cinematic. It had to survive. Right, because they're fighting, you know, you've got HBO and Stars and and Hulu and Netflix and all these people who are willing to spend money to compete because most people consume even feature films on their iPads or on their their 70-inch TV screens or the like. So tell me what you see as you've chosen mostly, virtually everything you've been done has been for television. Yes, and is that a choice? Um, well, I did. Uh, I had a ball like five years ago working on Pinocchio with Tim Burton, and that was a lot of fun. And it was uh, rocketing toward a green light. We were told everything was 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 going along, and then uh, Daryl Zanuck died, and that was. That was a career highlight working with him. Yeah, and, Dick Zanuck, yeah. Yeah, Dick Zanuck. Yeah. Sorry. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> I worked with him as well, and he's a wonderful man. He was fantastic. Like, old Hollywood gentleman yeah. and, uh, you know, eating with him at the Palm. And oh, wow. hearing stories <laughs> about sss, with Dirk Benedict. And I was, love that movie. Uh, I, me too. It was fantastic. Bernard Kowalski, right? Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. yeah. Uh, so... Um, I got to work with Tim and I got to work with Dick uh, and that was a lot of fun. And then... But tell uh, me about how that experience differed from the work that you've been doing on the small screen. Well, you don't have nearly as much agency. You're you're kind of peddling to make somebody else happy mm-hmm. and uh, which I'm absolutely fine to do and but it is a different sort of uh experience because you don't know if you have the power to ensure quality whereas a showrunner does and as a showrunner i mean you got to showrunner status pretty quickly in your career and creating shows like pushing daisies and dead like me um, there was also a fanciful quality about them in addition to – it was dark but with kind of a light on it. Right. Um, and 
that's not the case of probably what's your best known work so far in Hannibal, which is the darkest series. <laughs> but I also think the greatest series ever on broadcast television. I think it's magnificent oh, and a you. masterpiece. Wow. And I think it's, tell me about how that was conceptualized. You, you remade Carrie. Yes. You took the characters from the, uh, the Hannibal Lecter books and turned that into a TV series that had already been done in feature films before. So this kind of reboot process, but you made something entirely your own with this series, Hannibal. Tell me about that process. Well, I think I learned a big lesson from Carrie, which was I was slavishly faithful to the book. And I just wanted the book to go exactly from page to screen and I didn't editorialize as much as I may have wanted to if I had had the Hannibal experience first. Uh, so going into Hannibal, there were aspects of the books that I hadn't seen translated to screen. So I knew that there was there was validity in, an, in another adaptation. And... So much of Will Graham's character is this broken man who, through being broken, understands the worst in humanity. And he meets somebody who is the worst in humanity or arguably the devil and understands him and the devil understands Will. So here are these two people who had no one to understand them previously in their lives suddenly having a friend and I, I wanted to explore non-sexual male romance. Like mm. what, what is it that bonds men to each other in friendship that is every bit as, atten- as intense as a love affair, but they're just not. <laughs> <laughs> so, and they're coming at it from opposite sides of, of in quotes, good versus evil. Right. You and, know, one guy is a murderer and one, the other guy is supposed to be protecting us from murderers. And, but he understands him and that's that's his his vulnerability. So it, it wasn't until getting into the process, because the first season was very much, you know, the beginning of the first season was about servicing a broadcast archetype as much as I could stomach and still be telling the Hannibal story. So it was not that much of that broadcast yeah. archetype. Gratefully, yeah. Well, we 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 I think hit a stride in there were there were benchmarks in the first season where I was like, okay, we did that one right, and we did that one right, uh, and we we stuck the landing. One of the things I'm very proud of of that series is that the the season finales were all really strong. And uh, once I got inside of it, um, it really became such a dream to tell Will Graham's story that reality was slipping away from him and this this strange dream was taking him over and will he surrender or won't he surrender? And uh, I was buoyed so much by Maz and Hughes' Maz and Hughes' performances. Uh, 
and inspired by them in, in one of the best actor-writer relationships I have ever experienced with those, those two gentlemen. The last scene of season three, I wrote on the phone with Hugh when we were going through like, well, how do we, how do we land this elegantly, get everything that we need to say about their relationship without having words get in the way? And it just boiled down to me saying, well, Hannibal would say to you that this is all he ever wanted for you and for him at this experience. And he was like, and Will would probably say it's beautiful. And then they'd go over the edge. Um, But it was – I can't underestimate the value of that collaboration and making a showrunner's job easier, having a great relationship with the cast who make your work sing louder because of of their contribution. Was this the deepest one of those relationships you'd had, actor, writer, showrunner? Yes, uh, particularly with, with Hugh because we were both kind of living out Will Graham's dark side in in different ways, him, you know, performing it and me writing it and trying to understand it and also trying not to go where other people had gone with the character. So there were so many orange cones Mm -hmm. about the previous adaptations. I was like, we can't go there because that's been done really well. And what were the limits? Were there limits on, on which book rights you had and what you could and couldn't do? What could you not do? Uh, We couldn't do Clarice. Um, How the rights worked as far as I understood them, uh, was uh, Martha De Laurentiis owns the rights to Red Dragon. So she owns the rights to all characters who originate in Red Dragon. Uh-huh. And I believe she has options or what have you on the book Hannibal. But MGM owns Silence of the Lambs. Therefore, they control Buffalo Bill and Clarice, Clarice yeah. which were two characters. And I was like, please, please <laughs> let us play with these characters. Um, well, in a way, though, that freed you up to make it more your own show rather than uh, than the books. Yeah, and it's, it was interesting, you know, looking at uh, the, the Bates Motel adaptation, which uh, was – an interesting deviation. The the Marilyn Crane Marion Crane episode yeah, yeah. was fantastic. And as somebody who has been part of the Bates family, what did yeah. you think of the Bates? Well, it was interesting. Series? You know, the when I was watching the first season, I resisted it because they went so far removed, and I had already done the teenage Norman Bates and Norma Bates and. It was written, that script was written by Joseph Stefano, who had written the Hitchcock film. Right. And so I resisted it, and then I started to accept it for what it was. They wanted to not be Hitchcock. They wanted to be their own show. Then season two, it got into teenage high school drug dealing, and I was out. Right, right. And then it started to find its footing again, and I thought it became really interesting, and I need to catch up on the most recent. I have not seen all of the most recent ones. I have not either. I've only sampled them because right. uh, I, I enjoyed it in the first season. At, but time being what it is, I I rarely get to return to a second season. Not not for lack of trying, but just for pure time. And sure. So many new things are flying in, and there's baskets. <laughs> yeah, there's baskets on FX, which oh, is great. I love baskets. An amazing show. Yes. Yeah. That's really. a that's a happy place. So, what are the things you like to watch? 
Uh, the things that I'm watching are, or that I've watched like in the last year, were Baskets, Atlanta, um, Fargo season two <laughs> was a masterwork. And Bob's Burgers. Oh, Bob's Burgers. I haven't I sampled that. I love Bob's Burgers so much. <laughs> it's such a fantastic series. Very subversive. Very emotional. And really? the voice cast is wonderful. It's, it is top shelf TV. Have you watched Penny Dreadful? I saw, once again, I saw the first episode. Yeah. And uh, I, I didn't get a chance to return to it. It's very rich and textured in, in very much the way that Hannibal is. Let's talk more. Are you a vegetarian, right? Or a vegan? I am pescatarian. Sort of. Pescatarian. But I, I prefer to be vegetarian, but I often have some fish for protein. Hannibal is a very meat-centric show. <laughs> That's part of the reason I'm, I'm pescatarian right now, <laughs> right. is that show. So tell me about how that food becomes a metaphor in that series, because it's a very, very major part of every episode. Well, I, I think relationships in some way, in some extreme ways, are consuming and... Uh, represent consumption and you know you want to soak in your friends you want to soak in your lover you want to you know experience these people so there's something about you know eating them is just one step further than <laughs> loving them yeah um that the and also it's such a irony in in cannibalism which is is why it has always struck me as a quasi-comedic villainry because it's so perverse and broad that uh, somebody eating somebody else is my first instinct might be to enjoy that (laughs) (laughs) Uh, as opposed to be horrified. And um, I also think that there's something hilarious with as much meat as we consume and uh, the the villainy of the the meat farming industry that people get so squeamish about cannibalism uh, they just strike me as as so out of touch with what is happening with their bodies and the world around them that they would be horrified by a man eating another man. But you <laughs> see what happens in a slaughterhouse and it's worse than any horror movie you will ever experience. Way worse. So let's talk about comedy and horror because you're talking about something that you find comedic in Hannibal, which is really dark and (laughs) not laugh out loud comedic. Like much of your earlier work has much more lightness to it. Right. But Hannibal seems to be a turning point in which this darkness, it's such a black humor that it's a red humor. Yes. And, uh, but both comedy and horror go for a physical reaction. And I'd love to hear what you, how that principle worked in, in your work on this. Well, I think the, the, uh, admitting to the absurdity of a situation often gives the audience to enjoy the reality that the storyteller has crafted, but also see that this is ridiculous. And if I was in this situation, would I laugh or would I cry <laughs> or scream? And there are so many wonderful examples of horror and comedy working 
beautifully. And uh, it's, it's some, I mean, Hannibal for me is an inherently comedic character because he's so arrogant mm-hmm. and uh, looks down on mankind to the point that they're just cattle to him. And uh, the entitlement makes me smile. And it's mm-hmm. also one of those things where it's like, oh, I'm a relatively decent person. He, I wouldn't be on his menu because uh, <laughs> he has kind of a eat the rude law. So there's something hilarious about that. But, you know, going back a few years to April Fool's Day, which was a, a great 80s horror movie that balanced comedy and chills very effectively, had a brilliant cast led by Deborah Foreman and oh, Amy yeah. Steele. And uh, successfully found ways to make you laugh and to scare you all the while maintaining a certain reality. Uh, It's something that Sam Raimi does (sighs) masterfully. He always finds the the humor and the absurdity of a situation but maintains a reality that you can laugh and be horrified at the same time. Oh, my God. Evil Dead 2. Evil Dead 2 dragged me to hell. Yes. Which was – wacky shack with its <laughs> its uh its sensibility and he pulled it off um joe dante in the howling oh, there yes. are laugh out loud moments in the howling i even have a line in the howling <laughs> yes. which one at the very end my ex-wife and i are the two people uh watching uh, d in wallace bar? turn into the no that was uh, michael chapman the dp for uh, for scorsese but in our bathrobes and oh, yes. uh, D. Wallace is changing. I'm flipping through TV Guide, and I say, "What is this?" Right. Oh, Ta-da. Okay. Yes. <laughs> but when we were, when I was writing Fly Two, originally Sam Raimi was going to direct it on the strength of Evil Dead Two. Oh wow! And uh, it that would have been a different movie. It would have been a very different movie. And then he and his brother uh, wrote a different treatment that went way out to Cloud Wacky Land, and and uh, that would have been amazing. And it didn't work out, but. Uh, Great experience to meet him, and that they screened Evil Dead Two for me because we were working together on that. It was quite an experience. I love Evil Dead Two. The uh, it was uh, the night of our senior sneak in high school. All of the students were going off to drink beer in the woods by a campfire, and me and four three friends drove two and a half hours to the nearest town showing Evil Dead 2, and uh, that's how we spent our our senior sneak day. Were you a good student? Yeah. Yeah, I was pretty good. Like three, eight, five. (laughs) That's pretty good. (laughs) I'd say that's more than pretty good. So uh, about Hannibal, everybody wants to know. Did you know when you were finishing the third season that there would not be a fourth season? It was very likely that there wouldn't be a fourth season because I felt like we were running out of rope and NBC had kept us on the air for three years with numbers that nobody would have kept us on the air for. So I'm very grateful for those three years. But I I felt like it would be shocking if we got a fourth season uh, and we didn't. Did you want to? Oh, so it's still a possibility. Well, you know, 
I have conversations with Martha De Laurentiis. I have conversations with Maz and Hugh. We're all excited about the prospect of returning to the story. Um, there's some hurdles to get through. The, the rights revert back to Martha in September, I believe. And then it's a matter of do we do it with Galmont, mm-hmm. do, which would be the only way to do it if we wanted to use those characters. Right. Well, for me, I would much rather celebrate three seasons of a great groundbreaking show that maybe didn't get good numbers but was fantastic that it lasted that long than be depressed about not having a fourth, fifth, sixth, you know, go the way of Dexter where things started. Yeah, it was right. great here and it starts to drop, you know, that sort of thing. I, you know, I agree. I just had a great idea for season four. Yeah, so. well, that, that changes everything. Yeah. It's not because you have to, it's because no. you want to. Yeah, there's there's a, an interesting next chapter in the relationship between Will Graham and Hannibal Lecter that would be fascinating to unpack. And, you know, I've, I've shared it with the, the, the gentleman and uh, they're both keen on it. And uh, it's also, speaking of, you know, vegan agendas, there's a whole storyline that I want to do with uh, Katie Isabel's character, Margot uh, Verger, who, you know, now is mother of the Verger heir and in control of the Verger meatpacking industry. <laughs> I wanted her to be like Joan Crawford at Pepsi saying, <laughs> you know, don't quit me, fellas. And <laughs> nice. just like humanize all of the Verger meatpacking plants and, and and turned them over to uh, PETA approved. <laughs> so this is where you would go if there's going to be a season four? I, that would definitely Partly. be uh, marbled through the season. <laughs> so uh, to speak. Uh, would be Margot Verger taking down the meat industry as nice. a, uh, a hot, uh, powerful lesbian. Nice. <laughs> well... Let's get to American Gods. Yes. This is brand new. I mean, you often work from literary works, bringing them to the screen. And this, in the case of Neil Gaiman, uh, easily the most elaborate adaptation of anything he's done from an amazing book. Uh, Tell me how that got to be. Well, speaking of wondering about Hannibal future seasons, um, it was, we had just completed filming uh, at like 7 a.m. Uh, in Toronto, the Hannibal season two wrapped. And I believe at one o'clock, uh, it was either 11 or one. I know there was a one in it. Um, <laughs> I was bleary eyed. Neil Gaiman had flown into Toronto with Stephanie Burke, an executive at Fremantle. And it was to have a conversation about his book. And uh, he, he said, well, you know, do you have a take on this? And I said, not really, but I love this book. I love the themes. I love that it's an immigration story. I love that it's celebrating in a compassionate manner uh, the foundation of America with a uh, a harder, more honest look than you would anticipate from a fantasy novel. And uh, so we, we just talked about the things that excited us about the novel. And I was like, I don't have a pitch for like, this is the first season, this is the second season. I just know that um, I can conjure the images in my head when I read your book. Well, tell me about that process because 
it's a vast canvas. This looks like it has a huge budget, and it's of enormous scope. I mean, it starts out centuries ago, yes. and then it comes to the contemporary world, and there's this element of fantasy that's grounded in reality and gods and man, and, you know, it's very Nietzschean in yeah. some ways. And uh, tell me about the process of bringing that to fruition. Well, really, so so Neil said at the end of that meeting, would you show run American Gods? And I said, yes, if Michael Green can be my partner. And Michael Green and I had been, we, we met on Heroes and bonded instantly. There was like the first day when all the writers were coming into the room, uh, a group sort of broke off and we're in a circle uh, talking. And then Michael and I just went and sat on a couch and chatted just the two of us. And he was writing Kings while I was writing Pushing Daisies. And we had always talked about, gosh, wouldn't it be fun to showrun something with uh, another showrunner who's work that you adore and have half of it taken off your plate, uh, which we both were really hungry for. So when I called him, he was like, yes, <laughs> yes, let's, he loved the book and we had been talking about this. So, uh, we started the conversation and it's been two and a half years. Wow. So, cause that was at the end of season two of Hannibal before it aired and we wrote the first three episodes and then we started to understand more how to tell the story. But I don't think we fully understood – no, we never we, – we still haven't fully understood. <laughs> we more fully understood than we had initially what the tone of this story is when we were filming episode four. And so that hasn't aired yet. That's when we were like, oh, shit, that's what the show is. And um, we had to course correct because it's – the show is massive. Our, our – you know, our, the, the, the network frequently uh, and supportively told us that our eyes were bigger than our stomachs. But we would just <laughs> show them how big our mouths were and uh, <laughs> keep trying to get as much out of it. So it was – It was. Uh, there were a lot of lessons learned in filming it and these big shows, whether it be Game of Thrones or Westworld or American Gods, all go through these troubled birthing uh, pains because it's hard to figure out how to do a show like this on a television schedule and budget no matter how much money you have. And we didn't have any standing sets, which is something that, you know, Game of Thrones and Westworld had a little bit more of. Right. And uh, we... So you can consolidate your costs when you've got standing sets. You don't have to start fresh every time. But in this, in the case of American Gods, you're starting over and reinventing the wheel with every episode. Every day of oh every episode. God. So oh, the crew could never have a home where they're like, we know how to light this. We've been in here before. Everything was discovery, experimentation, execution, and hope. <laughs> that it worked out and uh that w it was it was an amazing process i'm so grateful uh that i went through it with michael because um it was terrifying and challenging and bigger than the both of us and uh that i i really value that partnership and um 
we're still carving out how to do this show. I mean, there, there are certain aspects of, of episodes that we watch and we just see Band-Aids. Mm. And, you know, we kind of like look through one eye and see if they noticed like how we fixed that thing that we didn't get right. Trust me, they don't notice. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't notice. Right. Thank you. Well, uh, yeah, it's it's these big shows are terrifying and they're they're they are massive machines and you are doomed to fail several times throughout the first season of, of any of these things. And then hopefully your failure to success ratio improves. Give me a, an example of what was something that was most challenging, you know, something that you put on a page and then when you bring it to screen, it's like, geez, how are we going to do this? Well, we initially had uh, a, a character revelation in episode four that we later found out was much too early than what we should have that character revelation. And fortunately, the in the scramble for production and limited access to construction, etc., uh, the sets that we had built for this episode did not turn out well at all. And Ouch. were built in a fashion that really hamstrung the director. So he, he couldn't move any of the furniture or the booths or to get camera movements or or interesting camera angles. And then that set had to burn down. (laughs) So so we shot it not well for a lot of reasons. None of them were uh, the fault or experience of the director who was uh, cast in an unwinnable situation. Mm. And after looking at all the footage, we said this, nobody can see this. Like not even on a DVD extra. Like there was a body that didn't work. There mm. were there was lots of things that just didn't work and we were like, oh my God, we we were we're trying to do too much. The production can't keep up with the scope of this story. So our choice was reshoot it or cut it and let it be cut. Wow. And let it stay cut. And so That's a bold decision. Yeah, and we were we were on the fly, and it was interesting because you pull this revelation out, which means that you have to cut every reference to that revelation that occurs in this in the future episodes. Which we got on the phone, and I remember Michael and I, I was pacing in my front yard, and I'm sure Michael was pacing in uh, his home somewhere, and we just talked it out. It's like, okay, if we drop the last episode, we can pay for some of this other stuff that we need to reshoot and then we can move that arc that was in episode four into the finale and it gives us a great punctuation and uh, all this stuff that wasn't working that like gave me diarrhea to look at the dailies (laughs) because it was so upsetting uh, just never had to be. And the studio got on board and the network got on board because it was uh, – it's, it's a really hard, tricky tone to nail. And the post process on this show was as demanding as production. The easiest part was the writing. <laughs> yes, always. <laughs> like so easy. Yeah. And then producing it and post, we were as active if not more active – because it was in Los Angeles in post than we were in in production uh, because at any given day, 
up until last week, we would need to be in Santa Monica, downtown Los Angeles, and Hollywood for color timing, visual effects, and sound mixing, mm. respectively. And so the best case scenario is Michael and I being in the same room together, which we couldn't do because we were supposed to be in three places at once. So we just rotated driving around town and we would be on the mix stage until 11 o'clock at night mm. every night, seven days a week. Wow. Because the sound design for this show was so complicated. We're, we're talking to um, Benioff and Weiss and they were like, your sound design is much more complicated than ours because you have electronics. <laughs> no, it's pretty amazing. The surround effects and everything, the sound design is spectacular and everything about this. Well, let's bring your blood pressure down okay. for a minute. <laughs> And let's talk about those gods and those characters and those moments that when you saw them realize, went, oh, my God, this is what I saw or this is beyond what I saw. It really was uh, as we were completing things with visual effects and putting the sound on. There was no one stage of the production where we felt safe until we had finished the sound mix because the sound mix on these episodes and Brian Reitzel's music took everything to the next level and also played things for moments that may not have landed as hard as they needed to. And but tell me a scene that you looked at and went, oh my God, this is, this is what I want the show to be. The, the second time we shot the crocodile bar. Ah. Okay. Um, and also the, the time, I think the, the first time we nailed it was when we shot the Lucy scene with Gillian Anderson mm -hmm. uh, that aired last night. And, or I shouldn't say that because we don't well, know. Well, at the time of recording this show, <laughs> yes. it was last night. Fair enough. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that, was, because Gillian was spot on in her performance, the set was spot on. And watching that, I, that was the first moment of relief uh. that I experienced because I was like, okay, we got this one part right. Everything else was a worry right up until we did the sound mix. So are there particular gods that give you glee to write and to realize and to bring to fruition? Yes. One of the most fun uh, scenes that we had writing was uh, a scene where Gillian Anderson manifests as David Bowie. <laughs> so all of her dialogue is repurposed David Bowie lyrics. So mm -hmm. for me as a massive David Bowie fan, that was... Uh, very exciting to do and, you know, it's sort of like there's a terror in knowing what Mr. World is about type of thing. Um, and uh, seeing Jillian, Jillian kills it in the mm. show. She does Lucy, David Bowie, Marilyn Monroe and Judy Garland and she's different in all of them. So that's a character that I love writing for. Uh, we love writing for Ian McShane because you mm. can just give a big mohawk of a speech and <laughs> it'll sing. Um, 
Peter Stramari, mm. who came in and played Chernabog, was so infectiously fun for the cast and the crew. He stomped onto the stage chanting, Chernobog, Chernobog, <laughs> Chernobog. And uh, Michael Green has video of him stalking the, the production offices in character. And he's, <laughs> he's amazing and such a hoot. So there's the as much as i love the dynamic between ricky whittle and ian mcshane we have you know the dangerous temptation of all of these fantastic characters who are coming into this world that we're excited about casting people that we're were fans of for a long time and or people that we've worked with in the past so it's it's really a gift that keeps on giving in a strange way well over your television career you have an interesting casting situation you have characters and actors appear throughout different series in the same role very much like Stephen King puts his Castle Rock characters in very different situations and tell me a little bit about what inspired that just an actor you like working with and you think it'd be fun for them to play it's, this again it's mostly that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's mostly really loving these actors as people and professionals and wanting to not wanting the tour to end relive the experience yeah yeah so uh you know i was very lucky to work with jillian on hannibal who was amazing in hannibal and and did such fantastic work uh and to call her up and say, hey, what do you think about this Neil Gaiman show? And she's a big Neil Gaiman fan. And we told her what the opportunities were for the character in terms of manifesting as dead celebrities every time hmm. we we see her. And I think she just dug the challenge. And it felt like something that she hadn't done before. So she was, she was in. And she never disappoints. Well, I'm going to ask you one question for myself before we get to some questions from the Twitter audience. Oh, okay, great. And that is, what's going on with the Amazing Stories reboot? That was my first job as a writer. I was the first writer hired to write one of the scripts for Amazing Stories, and it like opened every door for me. And so I'm fascinated to see where it's going. Right now, it is not greenlit, mm-hmm. and I uh, owe a script. <laughs> <laughs> and as soon as well, you've I, got so much time. Yeah. Well, now I'm just getting into it. I'm I'm like a third of the way through my episode, and uh, once that is finished and submitted, I I think the network will have something to react to be beyond outlines, and then everything will start rolling in earnest. But uh, first things first, I've got to finish that script. Now that I'm I'm just getting clear of American Gods. Amazing. American Gods is amazing. Joe asks, in an old draft of the American Gods pilot, the cold open featured a much quieter sequence with Anubis. What during the development process brought about the change to the final Viking action sequence? Good question and good catch. (laughs) Uh, We uh, wanted to start this show with a tonal land grab of what the balance of mythology, emotion, and wit that we could play. And we talked a little bit about the Coen brothers and uh, the opening to A Serious Man uh, with the Dybbuk coming to, to visit the, the, uh, the Jewish couple. And that 
tone was really appealing to us because we were like, what's the tone of this show? And we wanted each of the, the Coming to Americas to, to have its own tone. But we also wanted to start the story was something that was a little sweeter and more welcoming perhaps to all audiences as opposed to something that was so strictly male uh, like the Viking story. And uh, the network came to us and said we really feel like the, the Viking opening better frames this series than the Mrs. Fadil opening. And we we struggled with it a little bit because we struggled with how instantly male it was and that it might be off-putting to, to female audience members, um, but ultimately saw their point. And it does it is a better topic sentence for, for the series. And we switched around all of the Coming to Americas uh, in the first few episodes because four ultimately got cannibalized and spread into to three. Uh, three and four became three. And the Coming to America in episode four was the Mr. Nancy uh, coming to America that was in the second episode. The third episode has Mrs. Fadil that was uh, originally the first episode and we liked that that was setting up uh, in that episode not only that we were going to be seeing uh, Muslims later in the episode with Salim and the Jinn, but also framing that episode. Oh, I should stop talking because nobody has seen it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yes, I'll, I'll we stop won't talking. Give it away. Yes, yes, I'll stop talking. Well, I, I have to tell you, we had a lot of fanables on Twitter asking okay. questions here. So um, Mark asks, any chance we'll be seeing Hannibal's Wendigo show up somewhere in American Gods? I think it is such an iconic image, the the Wendigo and Hannibal's extrapolation of it, that it would be it would be fun to see that in the Hall of the Gods. We'll see. We'll see if we can put the... Uh, uh, that little wink to the audience in there. Okay, and Rathen asks, um, horror stories are products of their time. How do you feel that Hannibal reflected the social, political, and sexual landscapes it existed in? Ooh, that's, that's a, a big that's question. That's a heady question. <laughs> um, and a good one to close with, right? I think really uh, to go back to the uh, man-eating man uh, aspect of our diets as Americans. There, there was something about what's happening in the meat farming industry that is such a, a violation of what it is to be human and sympathetic and understanding and not cruel that to extrapolate where we are as a society in our comfort with that level of brutality, it felt like a nice opportunity to talk about cannibalism as how it relates to things that think and, and breathe and have lives and agendas yet are treated horribly and eaten. Uh, we, we are comfortable doing that to animals that are emotionally sophisticated and intelligent. But somebody doing that to another human being is uh, repulsive and I think that's bullshit. It's a good place to end. <laughs> I want to thank you for, for being with me on this. This is a great conversation. And thank you for all the great work you brought to television. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. This is a, a true honor. Uh, for me too. Thanks. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.